Well, I am standing literally on a stage behind a pulpit. But I want to ask you a question today here in a few minutes. Where do you stand? I'm standing here. You're sitting there. There are people standing in the back. And everybody is standing some, both geographically and theologically. Where do you stand today? Geographically, that's easy to figure out, right? You're up on a stage behind a pulpit. There's a couple gentlemen back there behind a podium. But theologically, more importantly, uh, we all stand somewhere theologically. We all uh, have beliefs. We come here on a Sunday. We didn't just show up and we're a white slate, you know, fill my plate with the word. I, I wish that were the case, but it isn't the case. And we all stand somewhere when it comes to the Bible and when it comes to Jesus Christ. There are those of you who are raised in homes that stood on the Bible, that stood on the promises of God. You believed it. You read it together. You lived it out. And you, when, when I talk about this, you're nodding your head and you're saying, yes, that's me. There are those of you who are here today that you may have grown up in a home that maybe believed the Bible, but you never read it, didn't really know quite how to apply it. I hope today's sermon will help you as well. And there may be some of you here today that grew up in a home that you didn't read the Bible, you didn't believe the Bible, and you still don't, and um, you're not living it. And what I want to show you today is that the Bible is absolutely true. It is without error. There are 66 books in the Bible, and it is from God to us. And I could go through a long apologetic, but I won't. I'll just give you one quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, he's the great Baptist preacher uh, from England long ago, said, defend the Bible. I'd soon rather defend a lion. Turn it loose, and it will defend itself. And that's what I want to do today is just open up the scriptures. You should have in your seat, every seat has this, uh, a copy of the scriptures today that I will be reading from. And it's about the rich, young ruler. And the two questions I want to ask and answer today is this. Where do you stand? When it comes to the scriptures, when it comes to Jesus Christ, where do you stand? And what's keeping you, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe you're hesitant. What's keeping you from following Jesus with all your heart? Maybe you're here today and you have bowed the knee to Jesus, but there are still things in your life that are keeping you from a wholehearted devotion to Jesus. What is it? I hope today's message, I hope today's passage will show you, uh, maybe what the, uh, give you a clue to what that is. Uh, one of the arguments people often talk to me about, and you, you often hear when it comes to the scriptures, how, how can this be so true? There's 66 books. I mean, even when it comes to the gospels, why are there four? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why isn't there just one? Why did we need four? And that's a great question, and I think it's, it's like if you were going to a, a court case, you hear from three or four different witnesses, and if they all say the exact same thing in the exact same way, you're going to say, I don't believe that. That's collusion. You've just taught them to say the same thing. They're just parroting. But if those four witnesses stand up and they roughly say the same thing and they give different insights on the same story, you're more apt to believe those witnesses' testimony. And so today I've given you in your handout uh, just the same passage of the rich young ruler in three different accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so up here, uh, you'll see a chart of just setting the context for this once we get into it. Luke begins with the parable of the persistent widow and the Pharisee and the tax collector, really heavy on prayer. 
uh, both Matthew and Mark deal with the teaching on divorce. And then all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, deal with let the little children come to me. And then right in the middle of this section of Scripture is this rich young man. And then they all follow outside of Matthew, it's the laborers in the vineyard, the same pattern as you can see up there. And so today we're going to look at Jesus as he relates to the unbeliever or the seeker, Jesus, how he relates to his believers, and Jesus, how he relates to an individual named Peter. And what you have in your handout there, I switched it up a little bit. I'm going to be using Mark as my text, and so I put it on the far left for you to follow. And so we're just going to walk verse by verse through this story of the rich young ruler. I'm in Mark 10, verse 17. And as he was setting, this is Jesus, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so what you're going to see is you're going to see this man, he's going to ask three questions, and they're all wonderful questions about the faith. Maybe you're here today and you have questions about the faith. This man we have come to call in Christianity the rich young ruler. And that's not because we're coming up with cool adjectives just to make this more exciting. Uh, He's actually called rich later on in this passage. Uh, Matthew in 1920 calls him a young man. And Luke, if you see that right there in Luke 18, it says a ruler asked him. And so this is a rich man. He has wealth. This is a young man. Supposedly, he has his health, and this is a ruler. That is, he has his might. He is financially set. He's physically fit. And according to some, he is socially first. And yet he's still concerned about the afterlife. Hmm. Seems like he has it all. He's healthy. He's wealthy. He's mighty. How about you? Are you here today and do those three things describe you? Are you uh, financially set? Are you physically fit? And are you socially where you think you should be? Don't try to distance yourself from this thinking, hey, I'm not, I don't have that much wealth. Compared to the rest of the world, we are, as Luke says in 1823, we are extremely rich. And so he's going to deal with this young man's heart. And he's going to deal with more than just money, as we will see here in a few minutes. As you saw in Mark 17, he ran up to Jesus. He was eager to be with Jesus. And he kneels before Jesus. This is a polite young man. This is an honorable young man. And he comes up and he asks the right question to the right person. What must I do to inherit eternal life? With all that he had, he still sensed he was missing something. Matthew, if you look right there in Matthew 19, 6, I've bolded it for you. And behold, a man came up saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And so even though he's longing for something, he comes at it from a particular stance. He comes at it from a particular context. He's thinking he can earn his way into heaven, though he's longing for something greater than himself. And so Jesus is going to answer him two ways. He's going to answer him about why he called him a good teacher. And then he's going to walk him right down the road to deal with his heart. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And both Matthew and Luke say virtually the same thing. This is a great clarification Jesus is 
bringing up. We often think of goodness in human terms, in human terms. We talk about goodness and we compare ourselves to other people. Well, I may not be the best, but I am better than so-and-so. That's often what, when you talk to people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's, well, I've never killed anyone. If you were here with us during the Ten Commandments series, we noticed that Jesus raised the bar on that. Yes, you may never have killed anybody, but have you ever been angry with somebody? Well, hey, I've never committed adultery, right? Jesus raises the bar and he says, but have you ever looked at a woman lustfully? And so we naturally, because we're human, come with the idea that goodness depends on humanity. And Jesus says, no, no, no one is good but God. Before he even asks anything else, Jesus recognizes a self-righteous heart in the one asking the question. Now, notice what Jesus is going to do here. He's going to tie the goodness of God to the scriptures. He is not equating keeping the Ten Commandments with salvation. He's leading him down the road to it. But he does say in verse 19 of Mark, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. And then Mark, and you'll notice the differences here, kind of combines a practical application of 8 and 9. Do not defraud and honor your father and mother. In Matthew uh, 18, the young man says, well, which ones? Which ones do I need to keep? And again, Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And Matthew adds, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because Matthew being the gospel to the Jews, is showing how Jesus is talking about the first and second tables of the law. And so in the first ten commandments, the first four deal with your love for God. He skips all the way over those, and he goes to the young man, and he says, do you love others? Have you murdered anyone? Have you committed adultery? Have you stolen anything? Have you lied? Did you honor your mom and dad? Did you love your neighbor as yourself? And what Jesus is saying there is our love for God is evident in our love for others. And the rich young ruler says in Mark 20, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Matthew adds, the young man said, All of these I have kept, what do I still lack? And I love the questions he's asking here. What should I do to obtain eternal life? He is concerned with life beyond himself. He's concerned not just with the day-to-day, with something bigger than himself. And then Jesus takes him to the commandments, and he says, which ones? He's concerned with getting it right. And here, again, I think his heart is showing us he's still missing, he's missing something. What do I still lack? I've kept all of these. And I don't think Jesus is going to rebuke him, as you will see. I think he sees in this guy some seeker, someone longing to know the Lord. It's an honest response with an honest question. And it shows not only his concern for the afterlife, but not only shows his concern for the words, it shows this young man's concern for maturing, growing in grace, so to speak. And then we come to a wonderful verse, Mark 10, 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He loved him. He loved him. Why did he love him? Is it because he had kept all the commandments from his youth? Is it because uh, he is one who seems like the world will look up in him and says, that person is blessed? No, Jesus loved him 
Because Jesus is God and God is love. Look at this quote. God does not love the world because the world is lovely. Catch that. Pause right there. God does not love the world because the world is lovely. God loved the world because God is love. For God so loved the world, and anytime you see the word world mentioned in the book of John, it is that sinful, rebellious, God-rejecting world. God so loved that world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so here, Jesus, that, that if John 16 is the classic end zone principle, you know, you see it hung out over the end zone. If that's the classic Christian principle, here Jesus is showing that right face to face. This is love with sin on it. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you ask what you still lack? You lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Go, sell, give, come and follow me. Wow. Jesus, to to him, says you've got to be able to release everything that you own. And he gives him a promise, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Right now, young man, you have treasure on earth. You are the rich, young ruler. You've got it all. Right now you have it all, but you lack one thing. Sell all you have, give it to those who don't have, then you'll have true treasure. Treasure, as he says, as Matthew says, Jesus says in Matthew, you'll you'll store it up in heaven where thieves don't break in and where they don't break down by moths, come in and rust get your treasure. You'll have treasure in heaven. Christ made a huge demand of him. He's speaking the truth in love. Notice it says here, Jesus looking at him, loved him. He's not being, this is not a mean Savior. This is not a a harsh Savior, but he is a demanding Savior. And Jesus, though he loves this young man, will not lower the standard for him. The standards are not going to be lowered for anyone. Earlier in Mark, he had made two big statements similar to this. In Mark 8, 34, in a crowd, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In Mark 9, 35, and he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of he must be last and servant of all. So what does this young man do? Does he say, Amen, Jesus? Where do I go? Where's the nearest thrift store? How can I get this taken care of? Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great Matthew says something similar. If you look at Luke 18, 23, it says, when he heard this, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. Now, this isn't about solely the rich versus the poor. A lot of pastors want to take it this way. They use it, and next thing you know, they're talking about give to the church. That's not where I'm going with this. 
In fact, Tertullian, an apostolic father, was right when he called it irreligious to scorn the wonderful world and refuse to enjoy God's bounty and thank him for it. Tertullian said it was goodness, goodness, goodness that made it all, and we are right to enjoy it. So Jesus is not appealing to this young man saying, salvation is because you need to be poor. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there are certain things in your life that are God's now. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an idol out of any. And this was this young man's God. Go. Give it all away. I want to read you a quote about the hard sayings of Jesus. The hard sayings of Jesus are not hard to understand. They're just hard to swallow. And you're maybe sitting there going, I don't have a whole lot of riches. And this certainly can't apply to me. Another day, we might sit there and discuss, reason with one another that, yes, you are absolutely exceedingly rich compared to 95% of the world. And we could talk about that. But I don't want to go there. I, I want to talk about the deeper issue is, what is it in your life may not be riches that is keeping you from fully fully following Jesus. Maybe you're not following Jesus because you recognize that you're doing pretty good. You're pretty moral. You don't commit adultery. You don't steal. And I would say, but let's go to the to the root of this. See, we may not have a great many possessions or be exceedingly rich, but there are things that keep us from wholehearted devotion to Jesus. What is the one thing, if I were to say, you you need to give this up today and follow Jesus, that would make you want to consider and maybe even walk away from here sad? Is Is it a relationship? Is it your family, your friends? Jesus said some hard things about Loving father and mother more than loving him. Maybe it's your reputation that, man, if I started to follow Jesus, I've got so many of my friends who would just think I was the biggest goofball. I mean, they would call me Bible beater, Jesus freak. I don't know if I can do that. I just, my friends might think ill of me. I had that happen in my own life. I was... In Dallas, Texas, I was running around with a group of buddies, and we were not the little angel you see before you today. We were in our spoots at Arthur Anderson. We were climbing our way to the top. And after an incident in my own life, the Lord got a hold of my heart, and after one Sunday at a church, it just took once, I realized I needed, I was putting the concerns of what other people thought about me, my career, um, I had a particular sin in my life at that time, several, I mean, they're all, they're, we all still have them, but at that time, um, enjoying the good life and all that it brought was that was my God. 
and by God's grace and for his glory, I had to have that conversation with my four buddies. Hey, guys, I'm moving. Why are you moving? Um, I'm going up north to, to Denton, Texas. You're in Dallas. You've got the Cowboys. Why, why are you moving? Um, I'm going to go move up and do a program at a church. Is it a cult? That, that's where churches come today. Is it a cult? No, it's not a cult. I just feel I need to get up there and, and study the Bible and, and start doing what the Lord is leading me to do. Okay. And it was, it was a very awkward situation. You could hear a pin drop. But I didn't really care what they were going to think because the Lord had changed my heart enough to where I needed to get out of that situation. But notice too here, Jesus didn't really care what the young man was going to feel. I, I, I would love to give this sermon at a seminary chapel one day for the sole purpose of, of just this verse, that Jesus didn't really care what the listeners were going to feel. Because we live in that culture today that what drives many pulpits, what drives many sermons, what drives many of the things that are said is, well, I just don't know how they're going to receive this. And Jesus wasn't harsh in what he said. He was very gracious. But he cared more for the man's soul than he cared for hurting his feelings. And so before we move on, if you're here today and you're seeking, I, I want you to know one thing. As the Lord Jesus loved this young man, I love you. And the elders of this church and the people of this church love you. And we love you enough to speak something that may hurt. You may think you're fit enough financially, physically, socially. You may think intellectually you have it all figured out. And the most loving thing I can say to you is no. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm pretty sure what's keeping you from following him is that you have a God in your own heart, made up or not, that you think is more powerful and offers more promises than Jesus. And so I want you to have a good time today and, and visit with people and but I want you to know the interest of our heart. We will not and we cannot lower the standards because you're a good person. In fact, Tim Keller said there are many people who do a lot of good things. Good things, okay? So I'm talking giving money to the United Way, etc. Make a list. Treating people with respect. Make a list. But here's what he says about our good things. There are many ways that we can use good things. We may be using good things to deal with the imperfections that no one else can see. We may be incessantly trying to turn material wealth into spiritual treasure to deal with an inner sense of poverty. That's good. We may be trying to turn physical beauty into spiritual beauty to deal with that inner sense of deformity. We, may also, we also may be using good things to feel superior to others. That's that going back, we compare ourselves to other people. 
or to get them to do the things we want them to do. If I'm nice to him, he'll do this for me. Most of all, we point to our good things, our achievements, and our attainments and say to God, look at what I've accomplished. You owe it to me to answer my prayers. We may use our good things to get control of God and other people. And so Keller would go on to say in another piece that he wrote that we need to repent of the sin beneath the sin or even the sin beneath the good thing. Because what happens here is you, you see what's sticking up and you may say, oh, that's just a little, it's just a little weed and I need to, to pull it. But this is literally what was pulled out of my wife's flower bed just yesterday. This little weed came in from running yesterday and I guess pulling weeds, good for her. And she goes, honey, you got to look at this. And I'm like, I usually don't use visual aids, but that one is going to be used. And so what Jesus was doing with the rich young man, now I got crumbs all over my, not crumbs, dirt. Jesus was saying, hey, way to go, friend. You're, you're rich, you're run, young, and you're powerful, and you're moral. You're obedient, and you're seeking me. You, you want to know about the afterlife? You want to know God's word? You want to know what you're lacking? And he said, Here, here's where it is. You're lacking because there's something in your life that you prioritize higher that's Jesus to the seeker or the unbeliever. And then immediately, Jesus in verse 23 of Mark 10 looks around and says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's a biblical fact. They perceive they have no need. Now I am going to hammer those who have money and physical fitness and social power. They're the hardest people in the world to talk to about the gospel because they perceive they don't need anything. Why follow Jesus? I've got everything. And he said it to them again. In 24, the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Amazed. Surely a polite, moral, wealthy person is one who is blessed by God. And Jesus then makes this enigmatic statement. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, all throughout the centuries, people have tried to lessen. Jesus is a very good communicator. He's a very simple illustrator. But we guys get bored in their quiet times, and they try to lessen that. And Well, really, there was a gate in the wall where the camel had to bend down and and needle is Aramaic for, for thread. And so, no, 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 my friends. <laughs> this is the needle. Can you see that? And there's a little bitty eye here. And a camel at that time, I wish it would be really cool to just march in, have Heath march in a camel right now and just have that. But just imagine camels right here with a big hump. It's a simple illustration kids get. 
that big animal can't go through here. Can't. It's impossible. I love what they said in Mark 10, 26. And they were exceedingly astonished. Just as he was exceedingly rich, they are exceedingly astonished and said, Who can be saved? Great question. Great question. What's the point? Humans can't save themselves. We can't do You don't just wake up one day and say, I know what I'm going to Heard that preacher yesterday. He was a sharp dressed guy, good looking hair. And, and man, I'm just going to follow Jesus today. You can't do it. It's, it doesn't come through human achievement. Mother Teresa needed Jesus to get into heaven. The Bible says it like this in John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, he had come to his own and his own had rejected him. He had come to the Jews. The Jews wanted to have nothing to do with him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, that means not of physical descent, nor of the will of the flesh, not by human achievement, nor of the will of man, not as it's conferred upon you by some priest or pastor, but of God. Ephesians, Paul says it like this. That was John, this is Paul. They're on the same page. For by grace you've been saved through faith. To receive is to believe. To believe is to have faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. What this young man needed is what Brian preached about at the end of last year. He needed a heart transplant. And I, I can't, and I'm sure if I quote it, somebody will go find a doctor that did a heart surgery on himself. But for the record, I've never really heard about somebody doing heart surgery on their own. We have in the back somewhere. There was a baby in here. There's, there's a baby. That baby didn't give birth to itself. Yeah, you're looking over there. That's right. The baby's like, hey, it's time for me to come out now. And, and you laugh and you get that. You say, absolutely, I get that. We don't do heart surgery on ourselves. Baby, don't. Um, but when it comes to the spiritual life, we all of a sudden want to kind of add in a little, yeah, but I, I did have something to do with it. No, no, you didn't. But Jesus replied, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. You cannot save yourselves, but not with God. For all things, all things are possible with God. All things, all things. Sarah, in her old age, wanted to have or was told she was going to have a baby. She says, no way. She even laughed at the idea. Genesis 18 says, is anything too hard for the Lord? I'm that powerful. Moses, he's outnumbered. He's got 600,000 people he's got to feed. And, he, and they're grumbling against him. God says, is my hand too short that I can't feed 600,000? I tell you what. You heard of the gas house there in Edwards? We're going to give them some of that great quail. 
for a month, and we're going to give it to them so much, it's going to be coming out of their noses. So he didn't just quite like give them, and they're the last guy was getting that last scrap. No, they had so much of it, they, ate so, they were puking because God said, don't ever challenge how powerful I am. Job, after he had come to God, he had done so well, his friends showed up. They did a great job in the first week. They did nothing. They just sat there and loved him. He had just uh, lost his family. He'd been diseased. And then he's, these, all these guys are given the, the young, rich ruler, well, you didn't keep the commandments. That's why God's not blessing you. And for 38 chapters, he wrestles with this. And then finally, Job shows his weakness, and he challenges God, and God gives him 72 questions, to which Job afterward says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? There is nothing too difficult for the Lord. Jeremiah prays this, and Gabriel reassures Mary. That's a Christmas story in Luke 1, where Mary said, how how is this going to happen? And he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? And I really believe, because I've met some, I've been one, that it doesn't matter where you are with the Lord Jesus Christ. You are never too far gone. You're never too far down the road. You've never sinned too much. Nothing is impossible with God. What makes it possible for you to repent and possible for you to believe is that Jesus Christ rose from the grave some 2,000 years ago today. Like it had... Just imagine, it was like today. And he rises from the dead. He witnesses for about a month to over 500 people. There's no mistake in this. He didn't kind of just swoon on the cross. He rose from the dead. And many people followed him. And even before he died, people followed him. And that's what Peter says in Mark 10, 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Or as Matthew says in his account. Then Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and followed you. And he asked the good question. What will we have? I love Peter. If, if, like when I get to heaven, Peter and I are going to hang out for a while because I mean, he's just going to go, yeah, you and me, we're like two peas from the same. You lived a little later in history, but yeah, because he often says things before he thinks that's me, but he, 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 He has this simple, I love him because he has a simple faith. He's just a fisherman, doesn't try to complicate it. And so here he sees Jesus witness to the rich young man. He's watching, hearing this whole conversation. Jesus goes right to the heart. And then he hears Jesus say, hey, it's impossible. And then Jesus says, yes, but we've left everything to follow you. And then this is in the commentaries. People get crazy about rich and poor. There are righteous rich people, I know them, and there are unrighteous poor people, I know them as well. This is not about Peter leaving everything. This is not about Matthew leaving everything in a sense that Peter still had a home. You can read it in the Gospels. They went to his, the house of his wife. Yes, the first pope was married. Um, he had a house. You go to Matthew. Matthew had a big house. He had a big party. He had enough money to buy people a big party to witness to Jesus. Peter may even have a boat. If you go read John 21, he said he's going back to fishing. So he, he didn't necessarily give up everything materially, right? He just turned over everything he did have to God. Did you catch that? Just take everything you have and say, Lord, this is you. It is not mine. I am a steward of the gifts you've given me. 
Peter, Peter still had a home. He had a wife. He had maybe even had a boat. And he turned it all over to Jesus. Jesus isn't against ownership. Otherwise, we don't have commandments. You shall not steal. <laughs> but, but what God wants, more than your material things, more than your um, tithes to the church, he wants your heart. He wants your heart. So, so Peter says, hey, use your tongue. I'm following you. I, I'm, you're it. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm, what's in it for us? Good question. And if you're here today this, and you know the Lord Jesus, this is what's in it for you. I'll, I'll, I'll go now to the Matthew verse 28 there because it, it's different from all the Gospels. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Being the gospel to the Jews, Jesus makes it, it makes sense that Matthew would show that there is a future for the nation of Israel. Paul deals with this in Romans 9 through 11, but that's another sermon for another day. And he goes on, and then in verse 29 of Mark, 29 of Matthew, and 29 of Luke, they all say roughly the same thing. I will go with Mark because it's the most detailed. Truly, I say to you, there is no one. Everybody here who's followed the Lord Jesus Christ, you're included in this no one. Who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, I love this, now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And so if you've left everything, Jesus says you have eternal life, and even now, if you've left your friends and you've left your family, there's a family called the church, a hundredfold. And so you can come from First Pres in Colorado Springs, and you can come here because we're all family, brothers and sisters. And so if you've left all that, you'll get even more is what he's making. It's the same promise he made to the rich young ruler. Go, sell all your possessions, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. It begins now. But notice what Mark said with persecution. This always gets left off of TV. You, you just they're reading through it and you're just like dot dot dot. With persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. That if you, and Paul says it like this, all who desire to be godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Luke says it like this in the book of Acts, through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a guarantee. And so the truest picture anyone can say to someone who doesn't know the Lord, who's questioning, it's to is to show them the beauty and power of God, show them the joy of what's to come, and be honest that the world will continue to hate this message and will be persecuted. And so the Lord assures those who have followed Him of present and future promises, both hard and worthwhile. And those rewards for their sacrifice they see some of it now and mostly in eternity. Mostly in eternity. But I, I want to camp on that one phrase, the gospel. 
you've left everything for the sake of his name and for the gospel, the good news. The good news, that's what gospel means. And here is the gospel, that there is a God who exists. There is a good God who exists. And that this good God has created us to be with him. He created us. He didn't evolve. He created us. He's the God and sovereign over all, and he created us for his glory and for our joy. And we, when we are most satisfied in him, he is most glorified in us. When our hearts are most satisfied and most enjoying who God is and who who he's told us he is, he is most glorified in us. He created us for his glory and our joy. But we have rejected this God, all of us. All have sinned. Isaiah 53 says, all have turned away. Each has gone his own way. We've either rejected him. There's no way there could be a God. Okay, let's just walk through this. You mean to tell me if you're here today and you're an atheist, let me just help you with that. And I don't mean to be coy. I'm just being honest. There can't be a God. Why do you say that? I just don't believe it. What, what are you, where are you basing that on? Science points to a God. Science points to something greater than this world. Science points to that. Oh, no, it doesn't. Yes, it sure does. I, I'm not getting into the details of evolution versus creation. I'll just, even science believes in a big, where did the Big Bang come from? Came from something. And, and the bigger argument, well, I just, I just don't, be, don't believe. No, really, you're an agnostic because you haven't turned over every rock. You haven't read every book. You're not all-knowing. And so maybe there's something out there that you haven't read yet. Maybe you're hearing about it today. But there is a God who exists. And so people have rejected him. Or they think, yeah, God exists, but, but he took my father from me. I will never believe in him. See, that's what happened to me, and you can make your decision on that. That God can take your earthly father, and I had a choice to make in his sovereign providential plan. Am I going to reject God? Or am I going to trust that he took my earthly father to give me something far greater? And that's what people do. They reject him because they think they know better than him. Or that you've all of us have fallen short of his glory and pursued our joy apart from him. Many people every day pursue their joy apart from God. And it's not long-lasting. And sometimes it's destructive. But in light of all that, Jesus came to die for us. He came to reconcile us to God through his death and resurrection. So Jesus came, that's Christmas. Merry Christmas. May not see some of you again, but there's my Christmas message. Jesus came to reconcile us to God, that God, we were separate from him. We were separate from him and Jesus died and we are now reconciled to God through his death and resurrection. You can't just have a death. You have to have a resurrection. So that is why we celebrate Good Friday, but we are excited, like Wendy said, about Resurrection Sunday. And by faith, it's by faith and trust in Him. It is by faith we are saved. And when we have faith in Jesus, we are, here's first and foremost, we are reconciled to God. We're given the mind of Christ. And so you can see life for what it truly is, what it truly means to be joyful, 
where you're adopted into a family. That's why you can travel three hours and be a part of a church and feel right at home. You, adopted into a family and you will face hostility. You will face hostility. If you need something to summarize that, there's a little pamphlet out on the table called A Quest for Joy. Did, God, did you know God commands us to seek our happiness? It's for you for free out on the front table. And so like the slide has been in the background, now it's in the forefront. He is risen. And so we can fool ourselves. We can think because of our good deed, God owes us heaven. My question to you is, is has your heart been fooled? I'll read Dr. Keller one more time. It's, it's one thing to have God as a boss, right? He's your boss. You're the employee. You do things for him. He owes you something. Uh, it's one thing to have him as an example or in a mentor. But if you want God to be your savior, you have to replace what you're already looking to as a savior. Everybody's got something. What is it for you? What is it for you? If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope you see it's not about being rich. It's about where your heart is. If you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, are, are you fully following? Is this, Jesus is, has an invitation for every person here today, myself included. And here, lest we forget the last verse, if you're walking with Jesus and somebody turns away sad today, they walk away and they just go, you know, great suit, but message was, you know, so-so. Kind of sad that he wouldn't talk about other things on Easter. If you're here today and you follow Jesus and that person goes away sad, are you okay with 20 years from now and you've been serving the Lord faithfully and that person maybe not walks back through this door, maybe we'll have a building one day, I don't know. But maybe they're in another church and the Lord finally opens their heart to receive the gospel. Are you okay? That maybe you, you guys will receive the same things in heaven? Look at verse 31 of Matthew and Mark. But many are the first will be last and last will be first. This is Jesus saying, hey, don't think because you followed me all your life that if I let somebody in at the end on the deathbed, they're in as much as you. Is, are you okay with that? Because Matthew 19 ends and then Matthew 20 begins with four. The kingdom of heaven is like a master and he spends the whole 16 verses talking about those who had agreed to the master for a certain amount. And there were some at the end saying, hey, I, I've worked longer and harder. And the master says, you know what? Friend, I'm doing, new, doing you no wrong. Do you not agree with me? For a, did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I gave you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with the what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Let's not begrudge God's generosity. Because somebody may walk away from here today sad. And my prayer is, sometime from now, they would repent. But I would be wrong if I didn't say it with some urgency that we don't know when Jesus is coming. It could be like right now. That would be really cool. 
Easter sermon, preaching, you're in church, you're all caught up in the air and you go about eternity. And I'll end with this. I'll end where I began. Where do you stand with this today? Is this some archaic book, outdated, um, irrelevant, lots of contradictions? Or is it the absolute true word of God that contains all that he has given us for eternal life? And what keeps you? Just the question. Just ponder. Maybe you don't want to ruin your brunch, but uh, what keeps you from following Jesus with all your heart? For some of you, it, may be, it literally may be, you may be the rich young ruler. And you have it all. And you're like, I don't need Jesus. I got money in the bank. I got kids who are healthy. And, you know, I'm upper middle class. For others, your riches may be something not monetary, not material. But whatever it is, it keeps you from saying, you know what? I just don't believe all the promises that I've heard about today. Let me pray for you. Father, by your grace and for your glory, I know where I stand. And as your word says, it's not because of my blood or my will or anybody conferring upon me, but because of you. pray for those in here who know you, who are your children. They've received that right, according to John. Thank you, and I pray that they would be encouraged. I pray that they would be strengthened in their witness to an unbelieving world. But today especially, I pray there's one person in here who's been wrestling with the faith. I pray that they may bow the knee. That, Lord, I have a great hope that if they do walk away from here sad or disheartened, that maybe you're going to work on them and keep them. With you, all things are possible. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your love. I pray now as we take communion, you would be honored. In Jesus' name.